it's time for our main Bible reading now, which is Esther chapter 7. So do turn with me. There are Bibles at the back if you don't have your own. Again, a reading from the ESV. Picking up Esther chapter 7, verse 1, reading to the end of chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine-drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs and attendants on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words save the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Do keep that passage open. We're going to be looking at that together. Uh, just to say, as we start, there's an outline of where we're going in your service sheets. Uh, do make use of that as you see fit. And there will be an opportunity at the end to make any comments or ask any questions about what we'll be um, considering. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good and sovereign. And pray please, as your people, we would vindicate these characteristics of who you are in our response to your word now. We would listen, trust and obey. Amen. Haman gets his comeuppance, and the reader is satisfied, even overjoyed. I mean, ever since Haman uh, was introduced, we've been willing to get to this point where he stopped in his tracks. Haman had devised a, a wicked plan to annihilate the Jews. Here he gets what was coming to him. He was the baddie in the story. 
We've been waiting for this. And finally, the moment has come. Haman is hanged. But it's not very Christian, is it? I mean, why are you glad at the demise of another human being? Aren't Christians supposed to show mercy? Love your enemies, says Jesus. Haman pleaded with Esther, but there's no mention of mercy here. Are we to understand that this is the low point for her? Yet it feels like it's the high point, the one that we've been anticipating and looking forward to. Furthermore, the way Haman was killed wasn't the minimum required to see him dead. He wasn't simply killed, but publicly humiliated. His body was displayed on the gallows, 50 cubits high, visible over the whole of Susa. I heard just the other day of an instance that when the book of Esther was taught in the church holiday club for kids, they all cheered when Haman was hanged. What are we to make of that? Is that Christian? Chapter 7 brings us to the second banquet that Queen Esther held for the king and Haman. Esther, if you recall, is in the process of making an appeal to the king in order that she and her people, the Jews, would be delivered from annihilation. It was a plot that Haman had authored and the king issued as an edict. And if you further recall, that the king, in coming to this banquet means that he has already agreed in principle to granting Esther's request. And it's here that she makes her appeal. Now, it's worth just being aware at this point, who knows what in the account? Because as the reader, we're in a very privileged position. We know what everyone else knows. But the people in the account, they're not privy to all of that information. They only know what they know. And it's easy to lose track of who knows what at this stage. And in particular, the king at this point, as far as we know, doesn't know that the queen is a Jew. And therefore, he's not aware of any threat to the queen by the edict that he has issued. Okay? Bearing that in mind, it's interesting to observe the Queen's appeal. For again, she's very shrewd in the way that she's thought this through. She doesn't say, when the King says, what is your request? Put an end to this edict that you've issued to destroy me and my people. That's not what she says. Rather, she's much more indirect and refers to the fact that she is about to be delivered over with her people to annihilation. She doesn't say who the perpetrator is. She doesn't imply that the king is involved in this. The king's question in verse 5 reveals that he isn't aware that this edict is the cause of this problem, either because he's forgotten or more likely because he doesn't know that the queen is a Jew. 
and so doesn't know that she's threatened by this previous edict. The king who wants to grant her request asked who the culprit is. Verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? There's again a certain irony here because the very culprit is the one who sits at his table with him. It falls to Queen Esther to make this revelation. The king is incensed. Haman is rightly terrified. At this point, the king goes into the palace garden, verse 7. He's now faced with a dilemma. He knows that he is implicated in this threat to the Jewish people. It was his signet ring that signed the edict. Can he punish Haman for a plot to which he gave full agreement? Can he condemn Haman for an edict that's gone forth in his name? Now, he can't overlook Haman's plot because he's promised the queen to grant his request, her request. But if he punishes Haman, well, then where does that leave him and his position? He has this dilemma. How is it going to be resolved? The solution comes through the providence of God. Because as the king walks back in, he is just in time to see Haman falling on the couch where Queen Esther was. This means that the king now has a case against Haman that doesn't implicate himself. Haman can be punished for assaulting his queen. Now, whether Haman actually did assault the queen, it's thought unlikely, bearing in mind the situation he's in. And the king may have even known that to be the case, but chose to construe the situation in this way because it suited his cause. In choosing so to interpret Haman's action, the king provides himself with a charge with which to condemn Haman that relieves the king from raising publicly the true reason. The palace guard has good political antenna, for he knows the king's desire and indicates that there, that there are gallows prepared. He even goes as far as to say these gallows are made by Haman to kill Mordecai, the Mordecai who the king had just highly honoured. His decision further justified, the king immediately orders Haman's execution. Now it's worth saying at this point that whilst there is some release in this narrative that Haman is the plotter and instigator of this plot against the Jews, so that Haman, who is the plotter and instigator of this plot against the Jews, that he is now dead. So there's some relief uh, there, release. The situation is far from over. Because there's still this edict against the Jews that they're to be annihilated. 
So, sure, we're going in a direction where we have the first step, Haman is killed, but the edict is not yet revoked. Haman is dead, but the edict didn't die with him. And can the edict ever be revoked? In which case, how will deliverance from the Jews uh, come about? Well, for that, we'll have to come back next week. But let's finish with a reflection on how to think about Haman's death that we considered in the introduction. Haman belongs to a very important biblical category, that of the enemies of God. The enemies of God are those who are opposed to God, who are opposed to God's king, and opposed to God's people. It's a category as old as Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve first contested God's rule and sought to usurp God's rule by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The penalty for being enemies of God is death and judgment. So actually, in the world of the Bible, Haman's demise is no surprise at all. The surprise is God's patience and forbearance of his enemies. So it's interesting that we can be surprised by what the Bible isn't surprised by. It's not the judgment of God that's astonishing but his mercy and forbearance. Now this, of course, includes his attitude towards the Jews, who, although not mentioned here, are consistently presented as disobedient to God. The purpose of God's forbearance is that God won't let his creation come to ruin. His plan is to reconcile his enemies to himself. And his forbearance of the Jews and his deliverance of the Jews is central to that, for from this nation will come the Lord Jesus Christ, who through his death will reconcile enemies. The Apostle Paul will go on to write in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now we live in this final phase of redemptive history where God is continuing to be patient and forbearing in order that people will repent and receive the forgiveness of their sins. That's the phase that we're living in. And that's what Carols by Candlelight is all about. We have the wonderful privilege of inviting people to hear this gospel of how God reconciles his enemies through Christ. But there is a warning here too. It's always a mistake to presume on God's patience and kindness and forbearance. It's always a mistake to squander that opportunity. For in the end, if we're not reconciled to God, then we remain an enemy of God and we'll meet him as such. And along with this pattern of death and judgment in the Bible, 
Haman's death testifies as he was lifted up 50 cubits high on the gallows so that all the people of Susa could see that in the end, God's enemies will not prevail. They cannot prevail. They must not prevail, but perish. Let's pray. I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you with the skill that the narrator of Esther writes that brings us to this point where we almost cheer at the death of Haman. And that itself gives us pause uh, for thought. And we thank you that his death is um, along the lines of um, the death of your enemies who seek to thwart your purposes. Um, And we thank you, Father, that uh, your enemies do ultimately pose uh, no threat to you. But we thank you, too, as we step back to the wider storyline of the Bible, that it is astonishing that you are so forbearing with your enemies precisely because or until the Lord Jesus Christ would come and provide reconciliation from just such enemies to yourself. We thank you that we're counted um, among them, and we thank you for the privilege of being able to declare uh, this gospel truth um, uh, to this city, and particularly in two weeks' time at the carols. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, time for questions and comments, and I can tell you one question that I will not answer, and that is, how are the Jews going to escape? Because if you don't know, you do think we do need to know a bit more. It's very interesting how it happens. Okay, thanks, uh, Mackie. So just for the recording, so if there was a similar situation today where there's a plot to, you know, uh, attack or kill Christians and then that person was then exposed, what do we do with them? Is that, is that the sort of question? So, um, so I think 
just to step back a bit, I think one of the things that is tremendously helpful in navigating questions like this is to think in terms of phases of redemptive history. Okay? Um, the, the storyline of the Bible is an unfolding story, and there are, there are different phases in that story. And obviously, Esther is in a particular phase, and it's a phase which is different from the phase we're in. Now, there are a number of different phases, but one obvious change of phase is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, resurrection, ascension. ascension. That brings about the fulfillment of promise. So, um, now, because of that, and I, I think this is, this is worth um, just getting your heads around, is that we can never face the situation that Esther faced because the Christ has now come, and now he is seated at the right hand of God. He's um, it's secure, salvation secure. Um, the Christ has come. Because if in Esther's day all the Jews were annihilated, then the promises die with the death of a last Jew. You know, and that, that, that theme has been set up since the book of Genesis, where the whole issue with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob having children is that the promise doesn't die with that generation. Okay? So the stakes are higher with Esther because the Jews have the promise, and from that nation will come the Messiah. He's come, and you can't touch him. No one can touch him. And, and, and actually, with him, we're untouchable. So in that sense... The stakes are the stakes are different. I think um, so. That I'd, in that sense, I'd, I'd say that this um, second thing would be um, is that the way that God has ordered this world, even though it's fallen, is He's given us um, nations and rulers, and His intention is that they would um, exercise uh, judgment. And justice, um, and so uh, if there is going to be any judgment or justice, I take it in the first instance it will be administered by them, by the courts. So um, we're to submit to the rulers, and there are systems in order to bring perpetrators to justice. So then it's not us taking it into our own hands. And then the third thing, this is a bit more of a, um, something to think about. If we looked at this over the summer when we were reading the book, um, what was it called? Uh, we're All Philosophers. We're All Philosophers. There we go. We're All Philosophers. Uh, I couldn't think of that. Um, and there was a book on the chapter on rights. Um, and... It's interesting that our society is encouraging us to think of our rights. Um, and it's all about, what are my rights? How do I exercise my rights? But the short answer is, the Bible never talks in those terms. Uh, it talks about our responsibilities, not least to God. He's the creator and therefore the legitimate ruler over to us. So we're accountable to him. But that also brings responsibilities to one another. But also in the mind of the New Testament writers, that we might, we might forego our rights for the advance of the gospel. So Paul did that. He forgoed uh, for 
forwent, forego, I don't know what other word is, for, for, forwent his right to receive a salary uh, in order that it would be clear that he was not uh, preaching the gospel to peddle money, but in order that it would be seen as the grace of God and free. So I think that's another thing to factor in, that in our society, which is as soon as we're wronged, you know, we're, we're, we're looking to bring about, okay, you've wronged me, you owe me, that actually we, there is this biblical category of foregoing our rights for um, um, yeah, f- for the, I say, I say for the greater good, I mean that, for, for, the, for the purposes of, of, of God and his advance of the gospel. So, and, but that's kind of a wisdom call as to, as to how to think about that. Cool. Anybody else? Vicky. Yeah, okay, thanks. So verse 5, um, it says the king doesn't know um, who the culprit is, and so has he forgotten the edict, but then he seems to remember the edict um, in verse 7, if we're thinking along the lines of he's then in this dilemma and he's going away to think about how can he punish Haman and not incriminate himself is that right yeah so so i think it's so i don't think um well i mean again presumably other things are said that aren't recorded here i think if he's forgotten it that more means it's he had he might not have forgotten forgotten it or it's just um that doesn't come to his mind so i guess when esther says my appeal is um, deliver me and my people because we are being delivered over to annihilation. At that point, the king isn't thinking, oh, you know, that was, we did that, I did that. That's the, that's the thing that you read back in chapter three. <laughs> like, he's not thinking that, partly because I suppose the edict, well, I mean, he's just not, he's just not, um, that doesn't seem to be where his mind is. But I think then when Haman is exposed, I guess then you can put two and two, two and two together. So I suppose, I mean, I mean whether, and also he's been drinking, like just whether he's just thinking straight. So yeah, I think by forgotten, I wasn't meaning like he's, it's uh, forgotten, forgotten, but just that wasn't when Esther made her appeal that wasn't something that he brought to mind until Haman was exposed. Does that mean? I think, yeah, I think, 
so yeah, um, question is, are we are we inferring the predicament? Um, I guess it's kind of like putting it all together because like, why does he go? Why does he go into the palace garden? You know, the, he, he doesn't just say off with Haman's head. So there's that aspect. He seems to be going away to think, or at least he's not acting at this point. But then also this whole thing about Haman falling on the couch will even assault the queen in my presence. That seems to not really be superfluous if he was just going to prosecute him purely based on the fact that he um, authored the, uh, um, the, the plot. So it kind of feels like the way this, the narrator is, is helping us to think it through is that the king goes away because he's got this dilemma to think about it. And then there is this provision of God's providence that actually there's another basis on which Haman can be um, executed that doesn't implicate the king. But I agree, it's not, it's never made it explicit, but it seems to make sense of, okay. Type one more, it's a quick one. See Father Christmas at the back. Good. Go on, Josh. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Josh. So just for the recording, the question is, um, we were thinking about <clears throat> in the talk about how um, we can be surprised by this category of enemies of God and God's judgment, but that actually isn't the category the Bible was surprised by. But then how do we communicate that, especially if people think that they're good people? How do we help them to realize that um, there's a default position of, of anyone? Since the fall is an enemy of God and the need of being reconciled, that sort of thing. Um, So, (laughs) so I think we just have to go back to the beginning. 
Um, so I, I, I approach this at a sideways angle. So I spoke to somebody once who had made a bit of a mess of their life and they felt very guilty. And I thought we, were, we weren't very... So that's, that's already someone who's not a good person but realises that they've done wrong and made a mess. And I thought, oh, we're not a million miles away from the gospel. Um, and one of the phrases that they used, I remember this, they said, um, I guess I have to take my guilt to the grave with me. And I, I was, it was quite a memorable phrase. I ended up writing to this person saying, you don't have to take your guilt to the grave. You know, explain the gospel. But I made a whole bunch of assumptions um, and actually, the guilt that the person felt was not anything to do with God. So this wasn't um, a guilt before God. There wasn't a wrongdoing before God. There was just a feeling of bad because I've done, you know, I've done wrong things. Um, and so then you just think, okay, there's you can't have repentance because the person isn't understood that they've turned away from God, that the, the guilt that they're feeling is, is a subjective sense of guilt, which is, is, is better than, like, nothing, but it's, there's no objective sense. It's not, it's not in relation to uh, the creator. And so, and so I say that just thinking, like, it, it feels like it, it falls short just to help people see that they've, they're not good people because actually we, we first of all want to talk to them in their relationship with their creator. Um, which is why, I mean, some of the students are here and they've been learning two ways to live. And one of the things that they've been, you know, being on and on at them about in these last few weeks is the fact that you have to go back to creation. Um, and actually when they learn their gospel outline, you don't get to Jesus till halfway through the presentation because you know, box one establishes God's the creator and ruler box two sin is rebellion against the creator rather than just the sins that we do sin is is our attitude towards God who has a rightful rule over us and then box three is that leads to death and judgment and then box four is the coming of Christ so, and I think without those three boxes, they've been exploring. It's just, Jesus doesn't make sense. So I guess there we have to kind of resist the urge necessarily to go straight to Jesus. But actually we need to fill in some of the background and actually it doesn't make sense unless we were in the world where we've been created and therefore we're owned and ruled by another. Because then it's like, well, then, you know, I would have said as a non-Christian, no, I'm not. <laughs> and you could say, well, that's precisely the problem because you don't acknowledge that. And how dare you? I mean, you, might, you can be gentle with me or, um, or not. So, so I think we have to do that. But I don't think there's like a, there's an answer. I mean, there's no like, if you say this, it happens. But I can't see how the, what we do need to do is find ways of, of taking people back to the beginning and explaining uh, the world um, from that viewpoint. Um, so, yeah, whether that's presenting two ways to live, whether that's taking them through the God who makes himself known, whether it's just talking about it and just, you know, um, uh, 
letting them in. And I think final thing, one of the things it's interesting. I'm doing the training with. We've got to make self known with um, uh, a couple of, of the students on uh, this week. And one of the things I think is helpful that we are trying to do is, is that if you start talking about God as creator, people might say, I don't believe that. And I think what we can try and do is to say, okay, I'm not necessarily asking you to believe it, but enter into the biblical worldview. Let me show you how it works. This is how I think about the world. This is how it puts together with the view that when they become to understand that, that God would then press that home and convict them of that truth. But rather than like argue, is there a creator? I wasn't created. It's almost like, can we buy a, a, an opportunity just to say, can I, um, let me show you the story and then you understand why, how I think. And then you can compare that with their story or their worldview. And that, that becomes the conversation. Whereas almost like it's hard to press sin home straight away because if you don't know if you haven't thought about um who god is you know it's hard to sort of prosecute when there's just no context for that does that um cool okay we'll leave it there we're going to sing um a beautiful song now about the depth of the father's love for us and sending his son to reconcile us his enemies so let's stand and sing